One tragedy seemed to follow another as the Che family was faced not just with a new war in Manchuria, but a sudden drop in the value of crops in late 1931. Produce was selling for less than a third of what had been just a few years back. The boys Jung Ho and Jung Guk had a slight understanding of what was going on from their relatively upper class education in economics and exposure to some world news networks. The details were fuzzy, but apparently a massive stock market crash that happened far overseas a couple of years ago was having colossal negative effects on world trade and the prices of goods. However, there was little the family could do save to struggle amidst a harsh famine. Finally, everything hit a breaking point as Jung Ho got very sick, suffering from a fever, and with barely any money with which to support himself. Fearful for the family's ability to survive, Che Dae-young decided it was time to take matters into his own hands. After some hopeless deliberation, he decided it was time to dismiss some of the rice paddy workers who dwelled on the former Yang Ban members' land. It was mid-September of 1933 when Dae-young began taking action. He strode across the field one blustery day and presented the Ho family with an official document that he was well aware the tenant farmers couldn't read, and thus couldn't dispute. The family members gasped and protested as he read to them that they were now to be dismissed from the land that he had allowed them to continue farming on since Japanese rule. They followed him back to his house to argue their case, but after they realized they couldn't do anything to change Dae-young's mind, they hobbled away, sobbing and cursing. Every day for the next couple of weeks, he would work up the strength to expel a few more families from the ex-Yangban premises. After the Ho family, he dismissed the Jong family, the Ki family, the Mun family, and so on and so forth. Dae-young was startled by the way that each subsequent dismissal became a little easier than the last. By the end of it all, over two-thirds of the population that had inhabited Yangban territory had been told to leave by the end of the harvest season. From then on, Dae-young's conscience remained locked in a purgatory. He had saved his family's life the only way he could, he persuaded himself. But he also knew deep down that he was condemning many of the families he had expelled to death by starvation. Over the coming months, he experienced a kind of spiritual unease, accompanied by angry outbursts, some of which an unfortunate So Young was on the receiving end of. Finally, the end of the harvest season was in sight. But just as Dae-young was beginning to look forward to not having to see the faces of the tenants he had dismissed, he noticed something unsettling. Many of the farmers, particularly those he had dismissed, were clustering together and could be seen talking with each other more than usual. Dae-young tried not to think about it, but as time went on, he grew more and more suspicious. He'd heard stories about peasant revolts across the country, whether or not this was the foundational stage of a revolt, he wasn't sure. But once more fearful for his life, he decided he couldn't take chances. On the last day of the harvest season, he called the Japanese police for assistance in removing the farmers. He watched as the armed officers entered the fields and saw farmers' faces turn ghostly pale. He stood there, unable to turn away from the sight. 
Suddenly, he saw a figure in the distance running towards his home. It was Mr. He. But ju just as soon as Dae-young had identified Mr. He, a Japanese officer who was following him caught up and proceeded to force him to the ground. Unable to stand the sight of Mr. He being kicked, Dae-young looked away. He was now equally fearful of the police he had summoned as the potential rioters. At the end of the long day, both the dismissed farmers and police had left the chase day. In the coming years, Dae-young would never feel the same walking through the fields around his house, and never would he be able to forget the terrifying, humiliating day that he had to rely on Japanese forces to expel his own country's people from his land. While Dae-young suffered with living with his actions, the rest of the family lived unaware of what haunted him. After Jungkook and Hanako arrived in Korea, they immediately went to Jungkook's childhood home in Keijo. Excited to reunite with his family he hadn't seen in years, and for his new wife to meet his beloved family face to face, he was disappointed to be met with Dae-young's intense disapproval. Minji, Jung-ho's new wife, shared the same concerns as Dae-young. Hanako, while unsurprised and understanding, was still hurt to be so unwelcomed by her in-laws. Soyeon had the opposite reaction. She welcomed her new family member with open arms. Jung-ho, not without his skepticism, came to accept his new sister-in-law. If his beloved brother could trust Hanako, then so could he. Additionally, he also shared Hanako's mantra, leaving that not all Japanese people are the same as the Japanese authority in Korea who abuse, cheat, and lie. That logic was the only reason Dae-yeon didn't protest further to their marriage. With Jung-ho at Hanako's defense in front of his wife, Minji, and uncle, she was allowed, with reluctant acceptance, to stay with Jungkook in the family home. When the time came for the pair to move to their new, forever home, they chose to stay near the family, living near the family home in Keijo. Later that year, in 1932, Hanako gave birth to the, her first child. The couple named the new baby girl Hana, a name that would work as both a Korean name and a Japanese name. Hana would come to resemble her mother in many ways, in both name and appearance, Hana would even carry on her mother's fierce personality and fiery drive to do the right thing. On the other hand, the older brother and his wife found themselves burdened by the weight of the years following the Manchurian incident. The impact of those times lingered in the form of sleepless nights, haunted by the specter of Minji's nightmares. Each night, she would wake up screaming, the memories of her imprisonment like relentless ghosts refusing to be laid to rest. In the quiet moments, when shadows danced on the walls and the mirror reflected a tired face, Minji confronted a darker truth. The shadow she saw wasn't just the absence of light. It was composed of guilt and fear, locked in a perpetual struggle for dominance. Guilt, like a relentless predator, fed on the fear, and fear in turn, filled the guilt, creating an unbreakable cycle within her. Her body bore the scars of a tumultuous past, not only from the brutalities of torture and imprisonment, but also from the grueling years spent toiling in the textile factories. These scars were a constant, somber reminder of the price paid for survival. An internal dialogue unfolded in quiet moments of reflection, a relentless stream of self-reproach. The echoes in Minji's mind whispered accusations. You're lucky to have all your limbs and like so many others who suffered alongside you. You emerged from prison alive, returned to a standing house, and found tables laden with food. What about those who shared your suffering but never saw the light of freedom again? Why are you the one still breathing? The weight of survivor's guilt pressed heavily on Minji's shoulders. The realization that she had not been able to change the world or alleviate the suffering of her fellow prisoners bit at her consciousness. 
It was a complex emotional landscape where gratitude for life coexisted with a profound sense of unworthiness. John Hu stood by her side with unwavering support during those haunting nights. The couple decided that Minji would not resume her work in the factory, at least not immediately. Minji knew she was still under surveillance and needed to lie low for a while. Additionally, her body, weakened by the hardships endured in prison, was not up to the demands of prolonged factory labor. Thus, she found herself confined to the role of a homemaker while Zhang Hu continued his work in the factory. This forced domesticity was a slow and agonizing process for Minji. It wasn't a matter of dysfunction with her surroundings or company, though. Her mother-in-law proved to be a compassionate companion who understood Minji's emotions. Moreover, the frequent visits from Hanako and the eventual arrival of Hana brought renewed vitality to the Che house. The bond between her and Hanako deepened, providing emotional support and understanding the transcendent worlds. The birth of Hana brought a new chapter to their lives, infusing the house with light and joyful noise accompanying a growing family. As Minji regained strength, she returned to the world, reconnecting with friends from the factory and fellow activists. These interactions became a means for her to keep up to date on the challenges faced by women and families under increasingly oppressive Japanese control. However, despite engaging in these activities to support her community, Minji's consciousness struggled to acknowledge that her capacity to affect change was limited in the face of the prevailing circumstances. Conversely, Zhang Hu adopted a more cautious and measured approach to life. Despite the deep-seated injustice that surrounded him, he made it a priority to maintain a sense of peace within the family. The events that had unfolded, his mother's arrest on March 1st, Minji's torture at the hands of Japanese authorities, and the promise made to Song Won about laying low, all weighed heavily on him. The desire for justice and change burned within Zhang Ho, but he felt the weight of responsibility for the safety and well-being of his family. The year was 1940, three tumultuous years into the war that had torn apart families and left many widowed. Minji and Zhang Ho received a distressing letter from one of Minji's friends. The letter bore news that demanded their immediate attention. As the couple rushed to the house, they discovered their friend on her deathbed, weakened by illness. In her final moments, she made an urgent request. Then Minji and John Ho took responsibility for her orphan child, Sulian. The friend's husband had already perished in the war, and the extended family hadn't been in the picture for quite a long time. Despite the complexity of the situation, the couple recognized that denying the dying wish was not an option. They agreed to take Sulian into their home, thrust into the unexpected role of parent to a 10-year-old girl. The burden was heavy, and the couple faced challenges adjusting to their newfound parental responsibilities. However, the extended family rallied around them, providing much-needed support. Hanako and Hana made frequent visits, helping the children bond and giving Minji moments of respite. The grandmother and Dayong gave all their love to the grandchildren, spoiling them, especially Dayong, just like their mother had done for Jongho and Jungkook. In the turbulent years of 1942, against the backdrop of Japanese-occupied Korea, So Yun, a resilient widow in her early 70s, found herself ensnared in the political whirlwind of the March 1st movement. Having already weathered the loss of her husband, Su Yun faced detainment for her alleged involvement in the activism that echoed through the Korean streets. Released with a heavy heart, she carried the weight of her convictions, but also bore an insidious companion, pneumonia. As the disease gripped her weakened body, she was admitted to a hospital where her fate would be sealed not by the ailment itself, but by the callous hands of medical negligence.
Within the sterile walls of the hospital, Sol Yun wants the emotional anchor of her family. Battled pneumonia, a foe that was curable in the privileging medical landscape. Yet despite the high success rates for recovery at the time, So Yun succumbed to the shadows of negligence. The hospital, strained by wartime conditions, exhibited favoritism toward Japanese patients, leaving Korean lives hanging in the balance. The lack of specialized personnel and inadequate resources exacerbated the situation, rendering So Yun's fight against the treatable illness a tragic testament to the grim realities of the era. So Yun's passing echoed through the fabric of her family leaving them shattered and vulnerable. The emotional foundation that she had laid crumbled, and the void left by her absence seemed insurmountable. Her wisdom, guidance, and unwavering support had been the glue holding the family together. Now, in the aftermath of her untimely demise, the family struggled to navigate the tumultuous currents of life without their matriarch. The, the impact of Yun's death extended beyond personal grief. It symbolized the broader losses suffered by a nation under occupation, where even the sanctity of healthcare fell victim to the pervasive darkness of the times. When Yun died, her family was devastated. For her brother, however, the loss took severe proportions. He had always been dedicated to caring for his family, mother, sister, and nephews. However, with Soyun's sudden death, the foundation of his world crumbled. She was the embodiment of his revolutionary spirit, and her absence left an impossible void. In his attempt to cope, Da Young struggled to keep up with a world that felt relentless in its forward march. Despite his best efforts, his physical strength weakened as grief took its toll. Loss, along with guilt, memories of those families in the fields, the Japanese police advancing towards them, all haunting him, consuming him inside and out. Two years passed, marked by the absence of his sister, and in 1944, the resilient rebel, weary from the weight of loss, breathed his last in the comfort of his home, surrounded by those who loved him. Time, however, refused to stand still, even for those lost in mourning. The war continued to wreak devastation on the global stage, and Korean society bore the scars of this monumental conflict. Death and disappearance became commonplace, and nowhere felt safe. And amid the chaos, the family of six clung to each other for support, a testament to the enduring power of familial bonds. However, new times were coming. And in August 1945, the two brothers, so different and yet so close to each other, found themselves and their families on the dawn of a new world. On the historic day when Japan declared defeat, the family gathered at the graves of Daeyong and Suyun. They whispered of the changes happening in the world at that moment, in a moment of unity and hope. The dream that had fueled Daeyong's tireless dedication the dream that Su Yung had represented in her vibrant spirit was now becoming a reality. The family stood united as they informed Dae Young and Su Yung of the profound changes unfolding in the world. Amid the war's aftermath, amidst the echoes of loss and resilience, the family found a ray of hope. 
the dawn of a new world beckoned, and the legacy of those who had gone before would be carried forward into this uncertain but promising future.